quick, there's a couple of announcements. The Man of God uh, men's conference coming up with a joint conference with uh, men from three different churches and more information out there on the foyer. You, you have to sign up through the Revival uh, website. So you go there and sign up. Uh, I've had some guys ask me about it. I'm going to be up there all day Saturday. So I'll, uh, I, I'm going to be there Saturday from morning till I teach at 7 o'clock that night. And I'd love to see you guys out there, hang out together, have uh, breakfast and dinner together and uh, lunch. So if you want to be a part of that, there information's on the oak box outside as you exit the building. And also this Saturday, we have Men of the Masters. So I think you heard about that when you came in. And great time, men, just to kind of hang out and be together and rub elbows and, and get to know one another. Super, super important time for us as men in the fellowship. Uh, tonight we're in Numbers chapter 16 as we work our way uh, verse by verse. Last week we had the week of prayer, and so we're back to Numbers tonight. And we're in a section here in Numbers from chapter 14 where we're getting really the story of why the uh, children of Israel spent 40 years wandering when they could have easily in just a couple of weeks from Mount Sinai been in Canaan. God took them to the border, the spies went in, 10 came out with a bad report, and the nation, the whole nation, really rebelled in their unbelief. And because of that, God turned them back to the wilderness, and we know that they'll be in the wilderness for 40 years. And there's many things that we can learn as Christians today from their story and their unbelief, and the fact that we are too wandering in the wilderness until the promised land of heaven. And during that time, we're to look at the children of Israel in the book of Numbers here and say, I don't want to be like that. These are things that we don't want to be like. We want to be people of belief and, and walk by faith. So they're an example to us. We learn from this, but uh, God has turned them back now. And we come to chapter 16, where this is one of the more famous stories in the Old Testament. I'm sure that if you're, uh, you've read the Bible or you've been in church for more than five years, you should have at least have heard about this story, the rebellion of Korah. And you're going to see from the very beginning, as we just read the first couple of verses together, you're going to see this is no small operation. Korah has organized a protest that is very large. It's very organized in terms of the people that are participating. There's 250 leaders from the whole nation. So this is a big deal. The, we, we sometimes think Korah and his rebellion is just one guy going, it really isn't at all. You'll see that as we read this. So again, what we're learning is these people, they're not trusting the Lord. They're not walking in obedience. But through each one of these experiences... And now for a time of 40 years, we'll be studying this for many chapters, they're growing. They're going to grow. It's just going to take them one step at a time. Failure after failure after failure, they're going to grow in their faith and obedience. But right now, they're really mature, and they're blowing it, and they're disobedient. And tonight, we get this rebellion. I've named it or titled it Mutiny in the Desert, because that's really what it amounts to. But with those thoughts, let's uh, come to the Lord in a word of prayer, and we'll study together his word. Father, we're grateful tonight that you have allowed us the breath and even the health to come. I'm thankful, Lord, that, 
that our sister Sarah and her fall, uh, she's here with us tonight. I'm thankful that you're, you're uh, blessing and encouraging uh, our brothers and sisters that are, are sick and hurt. And Lord, we're, we're grateful for Sharon Starkweather's uh, slow but, but recovery. And we ask God for those that aren't here tonight that are sick or hurting. We pray, Lord, for them and ask God that you would sustain them and encourage them. We pray for um, just so many, Lord, in my mind right now. And I, I, we just ask together that you would just touch and fill them and bless them. And as we turn our attention now to your word with thanksgiving, we're so glad, Lord, that we can open the word freely and read and study. I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would teach us things that we can apply to our lives, learning from the Old Testament as our examples, as your word tells us, and applying it to our lives even today. So open our eyes, teach us tonight, we pray in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we begin here with Korah's complaint. I'm going to read a few verses here, but notice we begin in verse 1. Now, Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. So here's the important point. He's a son of Levi. Who were the Levites? They were the priests, right? So keep that in mind. He's, he's of the priestly tribe, and they were given specific duty, uh, unlike the rest of the nation of Israel, with this guy named Dathan and Abraham, the sons of Eliab, and another one on, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, so Korath and these three took men, verse 2, and they rose up before Moses. They rose up. They're rebelling against Moses with some of the children of Israel. Here's their description. 250 leaders leaders, leaders of the congregation. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you might read it really quickly and you'll miss these details. And these two details are interesting or actually they help us to understand what is going on. This is, this is a very organized rebellion against the leaders, the leaders of the nation. There's how many? Two million people. The, 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 they've been organized. Remember, we went into detail about how these tribes have been organized around the tabernacle. God has come to be with them. His presence is manifest by fire at night, cloud by day. He's fed them quail. He's given them water. They're in a desolate desert. There's no food there. And God is sustaining two million. I mean, we go camping for the weekend. I've mentioned this over and over. We can hardly sustain ourselves without running to the store to get something more. For a camping trip. They're out in the desert. God is miraculously providing for them. But here's this rebellion of these 250 plus these, these three leaders here in Korah. And it says there, they gathered together, verse 3, against Moses and Aaron. And they said to them, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy. Who do you think you are? You think you're holy? We're holy. I mean, you've you got to get that in the story as we read through this here. And then he, he goes on, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. You don't have a, uh, uh, you're not the only person that has a relationship with God here. We know God. You take it upon yourself. You think you're Mr. Big Shot. That's really what they're accusing. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? We are just as important as you. How come you 
see yourself as our leaders. I, I don't see you that way. This is, this is Korah. These are his words. This is what's going He's indicting them. So again, this is a full-on protest against, think about this, the established government. These are protesters that are, that are protesting against God's authority over this vast amount of people there in the desert. Now, you, you might, even as I read this, I was thinking about all the different protests that we see now, and we're shocked, right? We're shocked at Antifa. We're shocked at, at these different protests against our government. We're, oh, that just happens now. Well, listen, listen. Protests have been going on and on and on. The evil heart of man. Eons, I, I guess I shouldn't say eons, but, but for centuries, for millennia, we've had this evil heart of man where, where man wants to be better than. They don't, they're not content with their position. They don't go with the flow, the authority. They revolt against it. That's what's happening here. So now we have a large number of the children of Israel being represented by 250. So this is, this is nationwide. This is not just a little group of 250 in Korah among 2 million. The, uh, most of the people, the congregation, the 2 million people are involved. They know what's going on here. They've chosen leaders. And these 250 represent the several million people there. And then you have Korah asking these questions, rebelling against that. Again, there's so many things I could say about what's going on even in America today with this socialist agenda and the protests against the democracy that we have. It's insane. And these people that stand up, they're men and women, even in our Congress, that stand up and they wanted the social programs, the government to fund all these things. And they're really protesting against the establishment they're protesting against democracy. They're protesting against all of these things. It's so, so bizarre to me because the same people that protest and they're saying certain things are immoral in our government are the ones that are for abortion, the killing of the unborn. Talk about twisted morality. But my point would be that there are protesters protesting against the government now, just as there were then. And this is major. This is a major protest against the established authority that God has put in place here in Exodus chapter 16. These 250 protesters, really, in front of Moses here and, and the leadership, Aaron. Now, remember who Moses is. This is really important to remember who Moses is. Moses is a very meek man. In fact, we read back in chapter 12 in verse 3 that Moses was very humble more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. So Moses, if you remember in chapter 12, was challenged by his own brother and sister. Remember the, the chapter that covered that? It was Miriam and Aaron that said, who do you think you are, Moses? big brother, or little brother in this case, little brother, you, you, you think you own everything, you know, ever since you got married to that woman, remember the, the story? Ever since you got married to that woman, you listen to her more than us. Well, they rebelled against Moses. So rebellion has been happening in this, this culture, and it's really because of his leadership. Moses is a very meek. He wouldn't be tweeting like our president. He's very, very meek. He's very humble. He didn't want the job. Remember, God called him 
at Mount Sinai and said, Moses, I want you to, he's chosen him. He chose him to, to lead the people. And Moses said, God, I can't hardly speak. Remember? He didn't want the job. Moses was a very meek man. And all these people are now challenging his leadership. But who put Moses in that position? God. So their problem wasn't with Moses. Their problem was with God. And that's really how it is in any church, Christian, biblical. It's, it's always that way. It's God has put that person in a place of leadership. And someone comes up to try to challenge that leadership in their flesh because they're not content with the position God has given them. Korah's complaint here in verse 3, you take too much upon yourself for all the congregation is holy. Moses, you've just gone too far. You've gone way too far in this leadership thing. You know, there's, there's a lot of other people that could do a better job than you. Look at all the complaints. Even your family complains. You're not a very good leader, Moses. You know, they went on and on, and they picked him apart there. Again, Korah is just not content with what God had given him. He had a place of leadership and authority. He was a son of Levi. His, you know, his great-granddad was a, was, a, was a leader in that. So he accuses Moses of not sharing some of the, the power of that culture, of that leadership there. But the worst thing here is that Korah is playing to his whole audience of 250 that are, and, the, and the rest of the nation that's probably listening nearby. He's protesting in front of these men. He's manipulating everyone. Now, let me just say briefly that this has not been a problem in this church. I've been in this church since 1979. We've never had a, a split, and I thank the Lord for that. And I really believe it's because we teach the Bible. There, there isn't a time where we just do the dancing bears and give out Hershey bars for church attendance and, and make a circus out of, we, we're here to teach the word of God. And as a result, the people in the church, you're growing, you're growing. And uh, because of that, there's, there's never been a coup or a break or a split in this church as long as I, ever, and I knew the founding pastor. And I thank the Lord for that. I, I believe that that's, purposeful because we, we study the word. But there are churches today where men want a title. They want to be the elder. They want to have a badge. They, they want to be on the board. And so they, they knock on people's doors and they, they really kind of upset a, a portion of this, the sanctuary, the people they sit next to. And how come I should? Well, I do that much better. I'd sing better. I'd play better. I'd preach better. I'd serve better, I'm a better, better, whatever. And there are those that do that. They, they want a title. They want to be a ministry leader. And they recruit others. They get a little group off to the side. Now, again, that doesn't happen in this church, and I'm grateful. And, and I believe we have elders that listen, and, and we talk about it, and we've, never, we've just not had that. And, I, again, I thank God for that. It's, it's God that, that allows that in this fellowship. But... There are those that have that problem, false charges, church splits, and all those things. Paul tells us this, and I think this is really important to, to share with you. This is what Paul says in Galatians 5. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, 
And then he gives this. He, although you have freedom as a Christian, you can do whatever you want. You can read whatever you want. Paul says, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another in love. I love that. That's really the attitude of each and every member of this church, that what should I be, pastor, if I come to this church? What, what should I be? Well, this is the attitude you have. You have freedom in Christ. You've been freed. But use that liberty in a way to love one another, serving each other, not, not as a liberty to take charge and, and command your presence and, and do your own thing. We all need to be aware that, that God is the leader of the church. And I, I make that very clear. And I, I'm a under-shepherd. That's what God has given me, that responsibility and that, that privilege to serve. And every pastor, any pastor that, that has been called by God needs to operate with that in mind. Not that you're special, not that you're different. And, you know, I, that's one of the things I love about Calvary from the moment I came in 79. My wife and I loved the fact that we could come with our flip-flops on on Sunday night, or it, it's not about what you, how you dress, it's not about how you look. I mean, we have our own casual thing. Some people come in here from a church that I grew up in, and they, you know, he's got, he's got, look at those, he does, he's got open-toed shoes on at church on Sunday, you know. That would have been a big deal years ago. It's, it's just not, I, I love the fact that we're casual. Pastor Chuck, Smith, that was, you know, he was known for that. The hippies that used to come in the church with no shoes on. And the elders that wanted to, you know, they're making the carpet dirty. And Chuck said, well, then let's tear up the carpet. We want those people to come in here and we want to serve them. I mean, that was his attitude. That, that really is our attitude. Anybody's welcome. You can come dressed however you are. We just ask that you bring your Bible and, and study with us. That, that this church is a place where we study the word. Now, Korah, it's very interesting, his, his grandpa was this guy with, by the name of Kohath. You might have remembered, I kind of, because his name kind of sounds like mine, I, I made a joke about that, you know, months ago when we met Kohath and, and his responsibility as a Levite. If you want to go back to Numbers chapter 4, real quick, just flip back there a few pages to Numbers 4, and I'll just read these verses real quick with you. Numbers chapter 4, verse 1 where it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of, notice the name there, Kohath, because the sons of Kohath were from the tribe of Levi. These are the Levites and their families. From 30 years old and above to 50. So there was this, this cutoff time. You, couldn't, you, you had to be at least 30, and you couldn't be above that, to serve in this ministry there, in the priestly ministry in the tabernacle of meeting. Verse 4, this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of meeting, relating to the most holy things. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering of the veil, cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put it on the covering of the badger skin, spread it over the cloth entirely of blue, and they shall insert poles. And then the sons of Kohath were responsible to carry the, these important uh, utensils, these, these instruments of worship, that was their job. They had a privileged place. So Korah, going back now to chapter 16, Korah has been assigned a job that has prestige at least. He gets to go in and take care of the temple, the tabernacle 
uh, utensils. That, that would have been a very important job. But he wasn't content with, with that privilege God had given him. He wanted more power. He wanted Moses' power. He wanted to have that job. That's what he wanted. That's, that's really what this story is all about. That's why I entitled this section, Mutiny in the Desert. So notice in verse 4, Moses responds to, to Korah here. Moses heard it. Notice what he does. He fell on his face. What do you do when you fall on your face, church? You're praying, right? So instead of arguing, I said, Moses, he's meek. He's very meek and humble. He doesn't even speak a word. He doesn't even defend himself. He goes right down before the Lord. And he spoke to, then he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. So do this, Korah, you and your rebellious guys. Take censures, all of your company. Put fire in them. Put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses, that the Lord chooses. It's all about God's choice of leadership. Moses is making that abundantly clear here. Is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourself you sons of Levi. So he kind of threw that phrase right back at him. You take too much on yourself. You think you're Mr. Big Shot. We're going to let God sort this out. Uh, This is such a classic way to deal with dissension or division. But Moses, his humble response is he just falls on his face. He knelt down and began to pray. And he probably right there began to pray, Lord, I I don't know how to deal with this. How do you want me to deal with this? Like any man of God or woman of God should, we we need to go to the Lord. So often we'll pick up a book or run to somebody else for advice rather than saying, Lord, what do you want to do with this issue, with this problem? We need to be like Moses, just to fall down on our face before the Lord. And then notice in verse 7 there, And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses. So Moses is leaving the choice up to God. Then Moses said to Korah, verse 8, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the work of the tabernacle? So now he's relating back to that chapter 4 that I just gave you. He's saying, you don't have a small job. You, you guys have a great job. You have a great privilege serving the Lord in the tabernacle to stand before the congregation and serve him. Verse 10, and that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi with you. And are you seeking the priesthood also? Do, do you hear the humility in Moses' request? He's just so humble. It's like, don't, don't, don't you understand what you're doing? Why would you do this? Why would you? God's given you a privileged position. Why, don't you, why aren't you thankful for this wonderful ministry that God has given you, that he's placed within you and allowed you to do, to do the work, verse 9, to the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to serve them. So I love Moses' reminder there. God's going to choose here, but he says, why would you step out of that privileged place of ministry to move into this other place. I mean, I'm sure Moses, by this time, with all the murmuring and complaining he's heard so far in this 
he's a year and a half into this journey by now. I mean, he's like, you guys don't even know what you're asking for. I, I, I just love his question there. It's so good. Here's the application for us tonight. It's important for you to know, as a Christian, that you, and I'm talking each and every one of you, are part of God's church. Paul calls the church, and he uses a metaphor for the members that make up one church. It's called the body. It's just a picture. It's a metaphor. A bunch of individual members that come together collectively with all their different gifts, a finger, an elbow, an ear, a leg, a foot, an eye, whatever it is, we all come together and the body becomes whole. That's, that's the picture in the New Testament for the church. And there are lots of different churches. There's, you know, church, there's big Baptist church and small Baptist churches and Nazarene and Methodist churches. There's denominational and non-denominational churches. Those that call upon the Lord. And in each one of them, whether there's 30 in that church body or 500 or 5,000, God has put them together. They're all individuals, and they come together to be one body. Notice what Paul says here behind me on the screen. It's 1 Corinthians 12. For as the body, there's the picture, the metaphor, is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all placed. See the word there behind me? We're baptized. The, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, theologically, is not speaking in tongues. You, a lot of people have been taught that, but that is not theologically the case. The baptism of the Spirit is when you are born again, God takes you from Adam, darkness, sin, and he places you in Christ, new position, that's your position in Christ, but collectively you're baptized in, immersed into this larger body of Christ where Jesus Christ is the head and we are just members of the body. And then there's individual members of the body all over America, all over the world, little groups, churches. But collectively, we're the body of Christ. We're all members of the same body. But notice Paul says, it's, he says, it's one body has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one. Do you see the focus here? He said it three times. One body. That's, we're baptized into the body of Christ. So even though we're a separate church, Calvary Chapel San Bernardino, You've been placed into the body. There are many different members. And even in this church, with the differences and the different members, what that means is each member has a place and a purpose. That when the body comes together and we all function with the gift that God has given us as individuals, we become the whole body, the body that God intended the church to be, our church to be. He's the one that gifts the people and places them choosing them, choosing the different members and placing them in the body, just like Moses was chosen as the leader. And God chooses and places us into the body. Paul tells us that there are many gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
in the body of Christ. He, he calls that the gifts of the Spirit. And we see that in different passages of Scripture. If you have a pencil, you can write it down. So you can go and read these. It'd be really good for you if you've never studied the gifts of the Spirit. It'd be good for you to at least look at them. And it's really easy to remember. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, and also Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, Paul teaches about the church and that God has chosen for each church and gifted pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles, prophets. God has chosen and placed in the church these specific titles of men to lead in the church. That's Ephesians 4. And then Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 really tell all these different gifts men and women have within the church body. Paul lists them, again, as I've said in Romans 12. Here's a list that I'll put behind me on the screen. Romans 12, 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same, notice this word, function. That means that each member of the church, doesn't matter how old or young you are, you've been given a gift. When did you, what, Pastor, when did I get the gift? When you were born again. There's a whole bunch of things that God does sovereignly in the life of the believer. When you put your faith in Christ, everything changes. The, the term is born again. The term means new birth. You're new. You're not old. You're not the same person just kind of revamped and remade. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start living like Christian now. The, no, you, you've been given a new nature. You've been given a new identity. You've been given gifts. Some, and I would, say, I, I, I would say that you have at least one. Some people have more than one. But I, I think everyone has a gift, and you should know what that gift is. Well, how do you know? You pray. You pray and ask the Holy Spirit. He'll show you. And then you use that gift so that the body is, that is one, one body comes together. Many members, but one body comes together. One of my favorite Bible teachers who I had the privilege of leading worship for in a conference who I read constantly, uh, Dr. Warren Wiersbe, went home to be with the Lord last week. And uh, he was right here in this pulpit. He did a three-day teaching right here. I met him. I got this great picture of Dr. Wiersbe and, and, uh, with my guitar. I led worship that week. It was such a blessing. And, and uh, he's just a real gifted expositor. Um, he said, the gifts of the Spirit are not to be played with, but are to be used to build up the church. So God gave gifts to each and every believer, and it's up to you to use them to build up the church. Now, Korah was not building. Korah was tearing down. Korah was accusing. Korah was using manipulation and intimidation to Moses, assaulting his leadership. I can do this better. Who do you think you are? We're, we're as spiritual as you are, Moses and Aaron. He's assaulting the church and with his co-conspirators there in verse 12. Notice Moses sent to call Dathan 
and Abram, the sons of Elia, but they said, we're not coming. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing of milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? We know why you brought We're not going to come and talk to you. You brought us here to wipe us out. Why do we want to talk to you? We, you don't mean anything to us. That's, that's what they're saying. Wow. Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance. You promised us to be there, and we're not even there yet. What kind of leader are you? Do you hear their accusation? We're not coming. You don't lead us. We want to lead you. That's really what they're, they're, they're really rebellious. These guys are evil. And again, this is, this is a nationwide protest. This isn't just Cora and a couple people. That's why this story is here. So kill us in the wilderness, verse 13. Again, their disobedience came from a couple chapters ago when they listened to the 10 spies. Remember what happened to the 10 spies? They died. And these people would have known that. That's the, that's the fact. Human nature, man. Okay, these, these guys are dead. These leaders are dead. We're going to jump into their spot. And they do the same thing sin. They're rebelling against God. Blame shifting, accusing Moses of their problem and their murmuring and their issues. They're guilty of all those things. And so after the words of these men, Dathan and Abraham, we're not coming. Notice this. This is interesting. The meek man, notice what happens, verse 15. Then Moses was <laughs> very angry. Because now he's got the anger of the Lord. This is a righteous anger. He's mad because I didn't choose to do this, guys. God chose me and God keeps me here. And you're rebelling against God. And that's, I believe, what makes him mad. And so he says to the Lord, do not respect their offering. And then he says, I have not taken one donkey from them. (laughs) That's his way of saying, I haven't taken a bribe. Lord, I've been honest with you. This is your problem, Lord. This is really what, this is where he's going. Nor have I hurt one of them. Verse 16, and Moses said to Korah, tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they, as well as Aaron. Let each take his censer. That's, remember, the little fire, the little bronze censer, and they're going to build a fire in it. He says, and put incense in it. Each one of you bring a censer before the Lord, 250 censers both you and Aaron, each with a censer. So we come to judgment day here in verse 18. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door. Notice where they are. They're at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They're before the Lord. Moses has brought them face to face with God, and he's going to let God deal with them. He's angry at their accusations against him. He hasn't done anything wrong. I haven't taken a donkey. But he's bringing them now before the Lord. So, okay, you guys, you think you're tough and bad? Let's let God choose. Bring your censer. Act like a priest. See, that's what the priest did. Aaron did that. He had the censer, built a fire, and an incense represents prayer. Mo, or Aaron, he's the high priest, right? So the, if, you're, if you think you're priest, act like one. So the 250 guys, they're acting like priests. They're coming with their little golden or their brass censers now. So every man took a censer, put fire, laid it, laid it on, and stood at the door of the tabernacle with Moses and Aaron. And Korah, verse 19, 
gathered the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Whoa. There they are. They think they're all bad with their bad little brass censer. We're going we're gonna to chase this guy out of the, the, his leadership or all. We're bad. And then they show up to the temple and God shows up. Whoa. Can you imagine? I can't imagine what they thought. Can't imagine what they felt. Again, we see these 250 rebels there and Aaron, and they all have their, their uh, censors there. Again, humanly speaking, you have 250 against one Aaron, right? There's 250 on this side, there's one Aaron standing there. Humanly speaking, I wonder what Aaron felt. I wonder what Aaron was experiencing at that time, like, Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. You know, riot's going to break out. These people are mad. They want to take over. They're protesting. And so you have this group there. But Moses, he's put his faith in God. He believes in God. God's going to make the choice. He's going to let God do this work here. Again, then the glory of the Lord appeared at the end of verse 19. Now, they're used to seeing the glory of the Lord. They have the the cloud of, of uh, shade by day and the fire at night. God has come and gone from the tabernacle. Everybody knows when God's around because the tabernacle is, is glowing, at least from that fire, that, that evening torch that illuminates the whole uh, camp, encampment there. So they, they're, they're used to the glory of God, but now this is God's glory. This is the word for glory in the Hebrew is kavod. Kavod. You can say it different ways, but but basically, it's it's God's glory. It's God's abundance, not just a little nightlight. We're talking flood of light. So we have God's glory, His abundance, His splendor, the brilliant light and the glory of God. They all show up with their little teeny, you know, brass sensors, and they're God. The light comes on. Can you imagine? Whoa, maybe this wasn't such a, a good idea after all, Korah. In Exodus 24, remember, I have the scripture here behind me, but it's when Moses went up to the mountain, every time he went up to the mountain, came down, the earth shook, the fire and everything. Notice here, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like the consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. They were down at the bottom, and they would look up and, you know, they'd see the mountain, and they were freaking out. So here God is. He's in their presence. He shows up to, to judge, really, and everyone there saw the glory of God. Verse 20, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, separate yourself from these people. <laughs> this is probably the best advice of this whole episode. You don't want to be standing next to these people when I come down and judge them. You better make way here. Make a separation, make a division here. He says, separate yourself from among the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. So God, again, uh, you guys want to step aside here? I can handle this. Yike, you almost don't want to watch. I mean, I, I love this story, but, but God is really saying, I'm going to destroy these guys. You better stand back because I'm going to come and consume them. Now, here's another beautiful truth about the man Moses. Throughout this story, 
And I've said it over and over and over again. Moses is a type of Christ. And what makes him a type of Christ is because he's the mediator between man and God. He's always stepping in between. He's always praying for these people that are so disobedient. And that's what we see here. But it's both Moses and Aaron who intercede, verse 22. Then they fell on their faces. We know what that means, right? They're praying. Oh, God, the God of spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all of the congregation? So kind of interesting the way he approaches this. He's really blaming this whole affair, this protest on one man, Korah. So he says, Lord, you're not going to wipe them all out because of this one man's sin. He knows when God says, separate yourself, I'm coming. I'm going to judge. He knows what's going to happen. So he steps in as a mediator, which is really important. A couple of things that are really important for us as Christians to understand, even from this Old Testament story. Number one, prayer. When you come to the fork in the road, when you come to the place where a decision has to be made, fall on your face. That's number one. You need to go to the Lord in prayer. You need to come to him boldly and ask of him, just like Moses and Aaron. They fell on their faces, verse 22. And then number two, intercede for your enemy. Intercede for them. Pray for them. Remember what Jesus said? You have an enemy? Pray for those that spitefully use you. Don't respond to their anger and their hate. As a Christian, pray for them. They need your prayer. And I love that about Moses. He, he really, really, he's, he's a man, of, he's meek. He's a man of prayer. He's a man that's very gracious in his dealing with people. And then because of that, God sends Moses now. He's going to send him out to uh, the neighbors of these three men that are being disobedient. The one, remember, they wouldn't come to Moses. So Moses sent word to them, we're not going to talk to you because we're better than, you know, they didn't want to come. So Moses now is going to go to them in grace, and he's going to tell the tent next door, oh, excuse me, you better get out of the way because God's going to do something here, and you don't want to be around. So I love what he does here, verse 23. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the congregation, said, get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. So Moses rose, and he went to Dathan and Abram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, the, next, the tent next door. And he said, depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So I mean, you can just see these guys. They're rolling their eyes like, whatever. They're not receiving anything from Moses. They're not going to receive anything he says. And so he's warning, Moses now is warning the neighbors there. And Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do these works. For I have not done them on my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates, here's, here's, here's really what's going to happen. Notice what he says. A new thing. God is doing a new thing. But this is not a, one of those good things. <laughs> this is judgment. These, these guys are going to die. But I love the way it's written here. God's going to do the, create this new thing. <laughs> and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them. See, if they just die of natural causes and their own dumb choices, that's one thing. 
But if God does a new thing and swallows them up, which really speaks about this special judgment, notice verse 31, they're swallowed by the earth. Interesting. Came to pass as he finished speaking. Remember, God said it was going to happen in a moment. It happens really quick. He goes over there. You guys living next to Dathan, you better move. You guys next to Corey, you better get out of the way. God's going to do a new thing. Boom, it happens right then. The ground split apart under them. Verse 32, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. And then notice, with their households, all their kids, grandparents, families, and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. And then the earth closed up over them, and they perished from among the assembly. Would that be shocking? If you were the neighbor tent, and you were like, well, really? Is this really going to happen? We're kind of on their side. You know, we're following these guys. And you're, okay, well, okay, well, we'll move out of the way. And then as soon as they step aside, the earth, everybody falls in, and the earth closes its mouth. It's a very interesting story. It's hard to depict, you know, uh, different Hollywood productions about how the earthquakes, you know, and the, you get a shift in tectonic plates and, and you know, everybody falls in the hole and then they kind of come back together. The, the depiction here is totally miraculous, like a mouth that opens up, swallows them individually. These, these three areas, you know, gone. They're just gone. They've gone down into the pit. Just totally supernatural, unexplained by anything else swallowed by the earth. So they're, now they're destroyed, right, along with their family. So here's the question. What, what, why do their wives have to die? Why do their kids have to die too? What, what, God, are you really fair? Well, he is fair. But here's the more important point. Bad leadership of a parent, a mom, a dad, you can lead your whole family to hell. The influence that a leader in a home has and I'm talking to you, dads. This is your call. You men need to step up and be a spiritual leader of your home. Don't let your wife lead you. And I'm glad she's spiritual. I'm glad my wife is spiritual. But it's your job, men, to step up. Otherwise, you'll lead your family in the wrong direction. And they will, in this case, succumb to the consequences the wife and the children, the grandparents, everybody, they were all swallowed up together. Then all Israel, verse 34, who were around them fled at their cry. Wow, you, you can imagine. They st that's when they stepped back. They stepped back a little bit. Moses, are you sure what's going to happen? And whoosh, they got swallowed and everybody's, ah, they took off running. They fled. That's really the, the, the picture here. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. Remember, they were in different places, the 250. First, they were right there in front of the tabernacle. But then there's been some time elapsed where Moses had a chance to walk through. I mean, there's, this, this is a big camp, 2 million people. He goes and finds these specific places. You better move away from. They get swallowed up, and all of a sudden, fire comes down from heaven on that tent, on that 250 and all these men that had rebelled with Korah are consumed with fire. So God judges them all. And any leftover rebellious Hebrews, <laughs> they, they run for their lives. It says that there in verse 34, lest the earth swallow 
us up also. So now the, the nation is kind of in disarray. They're the fickle followers of, of this rebellion, which probably accounted to most of the people there in the nation. They're, they're running, they're scattering, they're running for their, their lives. And then notice how God brings us together. This is fascinating. It's like a, a new barbecue lid for the, the barbecue or whatever. This is really interesting. A new altar cover is what I call it. Verse 36, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, so Aaron's son, to go and pick up all the censers out of the blaze, for they are holy. The censer is holy. Not the remains of the person that's smoking, smoldering right now, or the clothes or any of their things, but specifically the, the bronze censers of these men who sinned against their own souls. Let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar, because they presented them before the Lord. Therefore, they are holy. In other words, the censer is holy. God judged the men, but these things that came before the Lord, God is separating them now, these little brass censers that were burning, had fire in them. It could have been they were holding these things, and then God just took that and just made each one of them turn up to 2,000 degrees and consume each one of them. That would have been kind of cool to see. But they're burnt. These people are crisp now. They're dead, and they're smoldering. And so Eliezer has to go... Can you imagine the smell? You ever smell burnt hair? I mean, these, he, their bodies are burned. And so this Eliezer has to walk in there and find these 250 censers. That's his job. He has to go out and collect them all and present them before the Lord because God made them holy because they came before him. So Eliezer, verse 39, the priest took the bronze censers, which those who were burned up had presented, and they were hammered out as a covering on the altar, to be a memorial to the children. So there's a reason. Here's a reason for it. It's a memorial. God does a lot of memorial things because he wants you to remember. So here's a memorial warning. Don't go messing with Moses. Don't go messing with my government. Don't, don't rebel against the authority that I put in place, that I've chosen here, or you'll end up consumed by fire. And then it's a memorial to your children of Israel that no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he might not become like Korah and his companions, just as the Lord had said to him through Moses. So, I, again, here's the scene. you got chaos, right? The earth opened up and swallowed. What happened over there? Really? The whole, it swallowed, it's gone? You can't even, no tent? No people? And then... The people are scattering, right? Then fire comes down or, or the censers burn the people. So there's all this smelt, burnt flesh everywhere. Eliezer goes around, he collects everything. He gets everything together. It's, it's really interesting. I, I just think of Eliezer. He's got to be a young man and he's collecting all of these censers. Maybe he had some other guys help him. But he's going around and counting each one. He's got to find all 250 of these censers. And verse 40, the end of it said, that he might not become like Korah and his companions. Again, the censors become this important reminder that God chooses the leaders. Every time someone would come into the, that courtyard, remember the courtyard behind the veil, to offer their offering, as often as they did it, they walk in there and say, 
wow, everything is so beautiful and so ornate. Remember how gorgeous the tabernacle was? And then they get up to the, the altar, the altar of burnt offering. It's beautifully crafted. Remember how everything had to be perfectly made by direction of Moses, by the, the craftsmen. They get up to this, craft, this craftsmanship. They see the way it's built. And there's these lame, beat-up, battered pieces of brass that are just thrown over the top. And you're like, what's going on here? Dad, what, what's going on with the? Everything looks so nice, but look at that, these funny-looking lids. And the father, that was, that's course rebellion. I mean, they were, that was a reminder. That was a memorial for everything that would happen. And notice here in verse 41, Moses and Aaron, they, they're going to intervene. Now, again, because God is still judging the people. While all this is going on, there's judgment happening. On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, you've killed the people of the Lord. They were all ministers too, like you, and you killed them. But they haven't learned their lesson, have they? Now, it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting. And suddenly, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Uh-oh. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I might consume them in a moment. Again, there's a rebellion going on. God's going to quell it real quick and, they, quick. and they fell on their faces. This is Moses and Aaron. What do they do? They've been doing it all along. What do they do when there's a problem? They go right to God. They fall down before the Lord. They pray. So Moses and Aaron, verse 46, they take a censer and put fire in it from the altar, put incense on it, and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. So here's Moses again. He's intervening for the people. He's the intercessor in between God and man. He, he's going he's gonna to be a mediator. Remember, Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. This is another picture of the type of, of Christ and that we see in Moses. He's going to make atonement, verse 46, for them. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus and God's agape love, self-sacrificing love. They didn't have to do this. They could have said, you know what? You're going to get what you deserve. You made all this trouble. You made this bed. You're going to lie in it. No, they didn't do that. They intervened. Why? Because they loved them. Moses loved these people. God had given him a love for these people, even though they're rebellious. And so he intervenes. And Aaron took, verse 47, uh, took it as Moses' command, and he ran into the midst of the assembly, and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was, notice that, stopped. Isn't that great? Beautiful picture of grace. And agape love, that's what he's demonstrating there. Aaron he takes that censer and runs out there to stop the, the plague. The people are dropping in lines. They're going down, they're going down, they're going down. So he runs up there in between the living and the dead to stop the plague of the Lord. Now, those who died in the plague were, notice, 14,700, besides those who died in the Korah incident. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting for the plague had stopped. Mutiny in the desert. Wow. People going against God's ordained government and authority. A lot for us to learn. Number one, the necessity of prayer and intercession, right? You see them do it over and over and over. 
God's people, you and I, are living right next door. I'm guessing, I'm guessing that the, both your neighbors in your neighborhood aren't believers. I'm just guessing. Maybe you live in a neighborhood that's everybody on your streets a believer and they go to some church. But I, I, I don't think that's probably accurate, is it? And that person that lives next to you is made in the image of God. And God has, as much as they stink and they sin and they cuss and they do whatever they do, they do it because they're sinners. That's why they sin. How could they do anything more? They need people to pray for them. They need someone like Moses and Aaron to intervene. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have everything that God has given. You can pray for them. You can share the love of Jesus with them. And you can be like Aaron who ran in between the living and the dead and he made an impact, made a difference in their lives. Hugely important story. I think about in our own church, you know, we have the prayer chain that Carol runs. If you have a need, you send it to the office, and they send it to Carol, and Carol publishes it. And then the church begins to pray immediately. That's what we do. And we pray for that need, that person, that individual, the family, whatever it is. And we begin to intervene. We begin to do this ministry of Moses and Aaron. It's a privileged church. But how important it is for us as people to understand that we have people dying right next to us, right next door in our own neighborhood. And we just drive between church and work. And then we go to church and work and go to eat and church and work. And you know what I mean? And we just kind of ignore them. God help us to be people of faith like Aaron and Moses. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word this evening. I even thank you for the challenge, praying for my neighbors and their need for Jesus. They're dying. Help me, Lord, to see that. Help me to see that they're dying. And rather than just to say hi, neighbor, and wave, to really share the gospel, the truth of salvation with them in Christ. Give us boldness, Lord, and courage to share with our neighbors. And even some of the younger ones here that, that go to school, high school or college, give them boldness, Lord, to, to just share the love of Jesus with the person they sit with or have coffee with, their friends, their classmates. Lord, help us to have that heart to intercede and to pray for the lost. I love you, Lord, and we thank you for the wonderful truths that you're Word teaches us. In Jesus we pray. Amen.